How do you become wise? Does going to university make you wise? Not necessarily. Most of our politicians went to university. And trying to be as neutral as possible here, they don't always do the most sensible thing, do they? Well, does reading lots of books make you wise? Not necessarily. There are plenty of examples of people who's re- who have read thousands of books, but they've made idiotic choices in their lives. Reading books and going to university can be very helpful things to do, but they do not guarantee you will become wise. So how do you become wise? Well, maybe before we try to answer that, we need to know what we're talking about when we talk about wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowing lots of information. It's not just about having lots of facts at your fingertips. If it was about that, then anyone with access to Google would be wise. No, wisdom is about knowing the truth and applying it to life. So knowing things is only half of it. Wisdom also results in living well. So how do we become people who are wise like that? That's what our passage this morning is about. We spent several weeks now in 1 Corinthians, so we have an idea of the background to this letter. We know that Paul is writing to a church full of people that want to be impressive. They want to be seen as successful and wise. But they're a bit mixed up about what that actually involves. They know a lot about what is considered successful and wise outside the church. It means competing to get ahead of others. It means convincing people you're a high flyer, that you're on top of things, that you've got the intelligence to figure things out. That was the kind of human wisdom these people had been exposed to before they became Christians. And they assume that's what real wisdom is. But as Paul writes this letter, he's pointing them to true wisdom. In the section we looked at last time, Paul finished by reminding the Corinthians that when he was with them in Corinth, he didn't live and speak according to the human wisdom they were used to. He intentionally avoided all of that. But now he wants them to realize he does have wisdom for them. Christianity has wisdom for them. It's not the kind of wisdom they're used to, but it's the only true wisdom. So let's read as Paul speaks about that. We're going to read from chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verse 6 down to the end of the chapter, verse 16. In the green church Bibles, it's page 1145, and in the large print, 1771. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden 
and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them, because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word and it gives us three truths about true wisdom tells us true wisdom belongs to God. True wisdom is a gift of God's Holy Spirit. And true wisdom is essential for living well. First in verses 6 to 8, true wisdom belongs to God. Having spent time on the kind of wisdom he doesn't preach... Now Paul talks about the kind of wisdom he does bring in the beginning of verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. We already know what Paul's message of wisdom is. It's the good news that God has provided a way of salvation. Jesus has opened up that way by his death on the cross. His death wasn't just a tragic accident. It had a divine purpose. It was for our sins. When we accept that truth and trust in it, we are saved from God's judgment. We're welcomed into new life. That is the message of wisdom Paul has been talking about since chapter 1, verse 18. But what does he mean when he says he speaks this message among the mature? We might wonder, well... Is he talking about some elite group in the church? Are these the more discerning Christians? That can't be what Paul means. For one thing, his aim is to do away with quarrels and rivalry in the church. There's no way he would provoke more quarrels by calling some people in the church the mature ones. Imagine what that would set off in the church. And in fact, in chapter 1, Paul said there are really only two groups of people in the world. Those who consider the message of the cross to be foolishness 
on those who recognize it to be our only hope of salvation. So in the context, the mature must refer to Christians. All Christians. All those men, women, and children who believe the message of the crucified Savior. Now it's true that in chapter 3, Paul is going to tell the church they're not behaving like they're mature. But his point there is going to be they have no excuse for that because they are mature. They know the truth, so they ought to be living differently. So here in chapter 2, we know that Paul's message of wisdom, we know what it is. It's the message of the cross. We know now who the mature are. They're all those who accept the message of the cross. And then Paul says, by the way, this wisdom is not human wisdom. In verse 6, it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. The rulers of this age doesn't just mean government rulers, although it would include that. It means the best this world can produce. In chapter 1, Paul spoke about the wise man, he spoke about the teacher of the law, the philosopher of this age. He spoke about the influential, those of noble birth. Today, we might say the big names, the high flyers, the heavy hitters, the eggheads, and the trendsetters. Paul says, all of that... The wisdom I'm talking about doesn't come from there. The best wisdom they can come up with, it only has temporary value at best. They and their wisdom are all just coming to nothing. Instead of that short-lived human wisdom, verse 7, we declare God's wisdom. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. A lady called Simone Vale has said, To be always relevant, you must say things that are eternal. Those are the only things that never go out of date. Eternal things are the only secure foundation to build our lives on. Ideas about fashion go out of date pretty quickly. The latest trends for interior decor, they go out of date too. Even computer games get old after a while. And human ideas about the best way to live our lives, those ideas go out of date too. I grew up in an era when new mothers were all told they should be bottle feeding their babies. Then it all swung back the other way. And I don't know what the latest wisdom is on that. I feel sorry for school teachers. Because it seems every new education minister wants to tear up the blueprint for education and start all over. In the academic world, academics can spend their whole career studying some thinker who everyone's interested in. Only for the intellectual tide to go in a different direction and suddenly after years, no one's interested in all the stuff they know about Freud 
or whoever it happens to be. To be always relevant, you must say things that are eternal. And the only source of eternal things is the eternal one, God. True wisdom belongs to him. That's a message the Bible keeps insisting on. Through Isaiah, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The book of Job asks, Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, Only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Only the all-seeing eternal God has access to true wisdom. Because he's eternal and all-seeing. Here in verse 7, when Paul calls God's wisdom a mystery, he doesn't mean it was mysterious to God. He means it was hidden from humanity. Go back as far as you like. God's wise plan was there before time began, Paul says. But human beings could never get at it. We couldn't chisel our way through to it. We couldn't figure it out by ourselves. It was a mystery to us. And as Paul has been telling us since the middle of chapter 1, the heart of that hidden wisdom of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. God's way of delivering us from sin and death and hell. It was the cross God destined for our glory before time began. So those who trust the message of the cross will not come to nothing like the trendsetters of this world. Instead, they will share in God's eternal reign. But those who rely on human wisdom will never understand the cross. They'll never see it for the divine wisdom it is. And so they'll never accept it. In verse 8, Paul says, look back to the shakers and movers of Jesus' day. They relied on human wisdom. They thought they knew what was what. But they were so blind, they were so in the dark about true wisdom, they crucified the Lord of glory. Their human wisdom was so far off track, it fell so far short They actually hated and opposed God's Messiah. But their lack of understanding didn't even end there. They were so in the dark, they actually fulfilled God's plan against their will. They fulfilled God's plan even while they were trying to get rid of God's Messiah. God worked through the rebellion and he did the opposite of what they hoped for. He raised Jesus to even greater glory than he had before the cross. 
Paul wants us to see that is the bankruptcy and the blindness of human wisdom in the face of true divine wisdom. How could we ever think human wisdom is worth relying on? How could we put our hope in anything less than God's eternal wisdom? And if you're not a Christian, doesn't this eternal wisdom sound like the kind of wisdom you want to know more about? Paul tells us more about it in verses 9 to 13. True wisdom is a gift of God's Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The quotation is from the prophet Isaiah. And Paul understands Isaiah to be not so much looking to what God has prepared for us beyond death, No, Isaiah was looking ahead to what God has now done and delivered through Jesus. It's here already. This is about the salvation plan that was hidden in the past but is now revealed to God's people, to those who love him. And the word revealed is very important. Because what God has done through Jesus is beyond what the human mind could ever figure out by itself. Knowledge of this wisdom from God comes to us as a gift of God's Holy Spirit. So then, if we approach Christianity like we're doing a science experiment, if we decide we're going to use our human capabilities to weigh it up in the balance and prod it and measure it, and then give our verdict on it. If we approach it like that, we will never get it. Sooner or later, we have to come to the realization, I don't have the ability to make an assessment of what is truly wise. With my limited human wisdom, how could I ever make judgments like that? How could I ever pass judgment on things that are so far beyond my own insight and understanding? Don Carson says, the distance is too great between us and eternal things. Our self-centeredness is too deep and nothing in the wisdom of this age can help us. Our sin is so deep that we cannot truly see the cross for what it is apart from the work of the Spirit. In previous weeks, we've seen how the root of all sin is pride. We've seen how in the way God brings salvation, he's defying human pride. He's bursting the balloon of our pride. And here God is saying, You want to analyze me? You want to evaluate my plan of salvation to see if it's worthy of your trust? Let me tell you, you can never know me unless I reveal myself to you. You can never grasp my wisdom unless I share it with you. 
What a blow to human pride. And if you're listening to this and you find your indignation beginning to boil at this point, then that only proves the point. God has chosen to work in a way that defies human pride. When we hear that even knowing God is a gift he has to give us, then we have a choice. We can shake our heads in anger or we can humble ourselves and ask God to have mercy, to give us that knowledge of himself. Notice the end of verse 9. God reveals himself to who? To those who love him. Not those who come to him on their high horse. Not those who fold their arms and say, go ahead, God, prove yourself to me. There is a certain kind of search for God that's nothing but an arrogant attempt to uncover God. And there's another kind of search that comes from a sincere desire to worship and obey him. And verse 9 makes it pretty clear which kind of search God responds to. And if we have grasped this eternal wisdom, verse 10 reminds us it wasn't through any brilliance on our part. It was a gracious gift to us. Look again at verse 10. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. I think we understand this. No one in this room, nobody can truly know what you are thinking. Now your facial expression or your body language might give us some clues about what you're thinking, but they're only clues. You are the only one who truly knows your thoughts. And Paul says, so it is with God. Only he knows the depths of his own purposes and plans. So only the Spirit of God can give us accurate knowledge of those things. Now the Bible tells us God has not chosen to reveal all there is to know about himself. We certainly don't know all the details of his plans. But through his spirit, he reveals some true knowledge of his purposes. Enough for us to look at the cross and see there the power of God. To see his salvation freely given at the cross. If we'll come and receive it. True wisdom is a gift of God's Holy Spirit. And notice how this gift comes to us. It comes through God's chosen messengers. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 13. This is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. 
There are a couple of different ways of translating the last part of that verse. You'll see the NIV has a footnote explaining that. But whichever translation is used, the point doesn't really change at all. When Paul says we, he means those apostles Jesus commissioned to write the New Testament. They spoke and they wrote the words taught by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit delivers true wisdom through the apostles. We might say they are the channel through which that wisdom comes to us. Those who heard the apostles preach in person, they needed the Spirit of God to see the true wisdom of that message. And today, when we read the apostles' message, we are equally in need of the Spirit. So again, if we approach Scripture like an artifact to be analyzed and critiqued, it's going to be a dead book to us. Stone cold dead. The only way to approach it is with humility. Asking God to show us its eternal divine wisdom. That's why the writer of Psalm 119 says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. If we have a sincere desire to know God, no matter the cost to our own pride, if we really want to know him on his terms, then we will approach scripture with a similar prayer. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things there. True wisdom is a gift of God's Holy Spirit. It's given to those who love God, not those who challenge him to prove himself. And finally in this passage, true wisdom is essential for living well. One of the standard charges that's leveled at Christians is that we're narrow-minded. That we're not open to other ways of seeing things. That is essentially the definition of a bigot. And as we know, bigot is a word that is commonly used about Christians today. We're accused of being small-minded people. But Scripture has a very different definition of what it means to be small-minded. Look at verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and cannot understand them, because they are only discerned through the Spirit. According to the Bible, the small-minded person is the person without the Spirit of God. They have no insight into eternal realities. That whole dimension of reality is just closed off to them. It's like being deaf or blind, only it's a whole lot more serious. And so when the message of the cross is presented to that person, it just seems like foolishness. In reality, it is the center of God's eternal wisdom, but they can't understand it. 
According to the New Testament, that is true narrow-mindedness. And in contrast to that, look at verse 15. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. When verse 15 mentions the person with the Spirit, that is a reference to Christians. We've seen already no one can understand the good news about Jesus and believe in it without the Spirit of God. All Christians are people with the Spirit. But what does it mean to say the Christian makes judgments about all things? Does it mean I am automatically qualified, despite having no medical training, to tell doctors how to do their job, for example? Does it mean that I know better than Pep Guardiola about how to coach a football team? Does it mean the Christian knows everything about everything? No, in the context here, all things means things in every dimension. Both the natural dimension and the spiritual dimension. That's what Paul has been talking about. The Christian's knowledge is not limited to just natural things. Christians have knowledge of spiritual things too. And so along with everyone else in this world, we can know about this natural dimension. We can learn skills like driving, cooking, building. We can succeed at those things to greater or lesser degrees depending on our ability. We can learn about history. We can learn about science. We can appreciate the human condition that we all share. We know about loneliness. We know about fears and hopes and ambitions. We know about the challenges of relationships. We have first-hand knowledge of fallen, broken life and all of its complexity. Both Christians and non-Christians have access to that dimension of knowledge. We don't know all there is to know about those things, but we can all, to some degree, make judgments about those things. But what Paul is saying is, that is where it ends for the non-Christian, the person without the Spirit. The spiritual dimension is closed to them. They have no insight into it at all. But the Christian lives in both dimensions, or both worlds, if you like. We can know something about the world of human wisdom, and we also know something of God's eternal wisdom. We know something about God's view of things. We know about his just wrath against sin. We know too about God's plan of salvation, his work to save sinners. The reality of God the Son taking on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. 
We can understand something of the eternal significance of Jesus' death. That it was in our place for our sins. We know something of God's plans for the future too. That his risen son will return to judge the living and the dead. That beyond the judgment, there is either eternal punishment for those who reject Jesus or eternal life for those who run to him for forgiveness. As Christians, we certainly don't know all there is to know about God. But we do know these things. So the Bible would ask, let's come back to that question. Who is the truly narrow-minded person? Who's the person with the truly limited horizon? Isn't it the person without the Spirit of God? And who has the more comprehensive perspective? Isn't it the person with the Spirit of God? That explains the end of verse 15. The person with the Spirit is not subject to merely human judgments. That does not mean Christians are above ever being corrected or being rebuked. That does not mean Christians can never be held to account about anything. Even by those without the Spirit. If I get caught speeding... I deserve a ticket whether the policeman is a Christian or not. If I put rubbish answers on my exams, I don't deserve good marks. Whether the examiner is a Christian or not, they're perfectly justified in making judgments about my rubbish answers. So then what does this mean? It's saying the person without the Spirit is not qualified to make judgments about what Christians believe. The person without the Spirit is stuck in the merely human dimension. And so just like a person who's born blind is not qualified to make judgments about the colors of a Rembrandt, just like a person born deaf is not qualified to make judgments about a Beethoven symphony. So, in a similar way, the person without the Spirit is not qualified to make judgments about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's a pretty blunt application of all this. Only the Christian is truly able to live well. Only the Christian has access to the eternal wisdom that's needed to live well. How can we possibly set the best course for our lives? How can we possibly set the right priorities if eternal wisdom is shut off to us? If it is just a closed dimension? We're going to end up living for things that are temporary. The next exam, the next paycheck, the next gadget, the next promotion, the next new exciting relationship. Even living for retirement. 
I had an uncle. He was a successful businessman and he spent decades just hoarding money. Gathering it up. And there was lots of it for him to gather up. Hoarding his money and planning meticulously the most awesome, luxurious retirement for himself. It was going to be amazing. And he let us all know about it. And then less than a year after he retired, he dropped dead in his villa in Tenerife. He poured his life into getting ready for that. That was priority number one for him. Earn, hoard, then I'll spend the rest of my life enjoying it. It didn't turn out that way. Of course, lots of people try it the other way around. Enjoy it all now. Forget about the future. Just do whatever your heart tells you to do today. We probably all know people like that. And we know the trail of hurt those people usually leave behind them as they follow their heart wherever it leads them. We know about the broken promises. The broken families, the selfishness that comes from trying to grab all of your enjoyment right now. Only the Christian has access to the eternal wisdom that is needed to live well. When we set our long-term priorities and make our daily decisions, that wisdom teaches us not just to consider what's in it for me, But what's in it for those around me? What's in it for God's glory? Now, we could go on to ask, do we always make good use of that eternal wisdom that has been revealed to us by the Spirit of God? No, we don't. When we come back to this after Christmas, Paul's going to tell the Corinthians they need to be making much better use of the eternal wisdom they have access to. They're not living like men and women who have the Spirit. But the point is, the Corinthian church can be challenged about that. We can be challenged because we have the Spirit. It is possible for us to come back to the cross, to see again the wisdom of it, And to see again, the cross is not just something we believe in. The cross sets the standard for our lives. We are to live with the mindset of the crucified one. The mindset that knows a successful life is not about elbowing our way to the front. It's not about getting other people to serve us. It's not about getting our claws around all the goodies we can. Neither is it about trying to avoid responsibility and just have an easy life. Because we have the Spirit, we can look at the cross and know a successful life is a life lived in willing obedience to God. That was how Jesus lived and died. That was the mind 
of Christ, which Paul mentions in the last verse. That was the mind of Christ, and that is true wisdom. That is eternal wisdom. It's wisdom that even as Christians, we keep, need to keep coming back to and opening our eyes to all over again. And our last song is a prayer that we would do that, that we would live out this wisdom God has given to us by his grace. The song says, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day.